we know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability. It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. I'm so glad you can join us on Mission Evolution, where we bring the latest knowledge from today's leading experts to support your evolutionary process. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. This hour, we'll explore restoring human dignity, evolution of patient care. Healthcare has undergone some serious challenges in the last 50 years. First, the insurance companies started playing a larger role until it would appear they call more shots than the doctors do. Doctors' patient loads have increased exponentially. And then, inner stage left, COVID. What has happened to the quality of healthcare and the consideration of patients' emotional well being and dignity as a result? With us this hour to take a deep look into patient care is Dr. E. Wesley Ely, the author of Every Deep Drawn Breath. Dr. Ely is a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and the Associate Director of Research for the VA Tennessee Valley Geriatric Research and Education Clinical Center. He's also the co-author, excuse me, co-director of the Center for Clinical Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship. Dr. Ely's research has focused on improving the care and outcomes of critical ill patients. You can find him on Twitter, Twitter at Wes Ely, MD. Dr. Ely, thank you so much for joining us on Mission Evolution. Thank you, Gwilda. It's been my excited privilege to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So whatever prompted you to become an MD is not a simple thing. As a boy, my father left when I was little, and we grew up in the Deep South in Louisiana. And to make money for the family, I worked on a farm for many years, and working next to the pickers day in, day out, I could see how little things in their life would become big things because nobody was there to hear them or to lift them up. And somehow my dad being an engineer, even though he had left us, my mom being an English teacher, I really thought that I would split the difference and go with humanities and science and be a physician in an effort to try and lift up and give voice to the people who had had their voice suppressed, such as people of limited 
educational, socioeconomic background or cultural differences. And that's really what drove me to want to become a doctor. So what drove you to focus on improving the care and outcomes of critically ill patients? When I was studying to be a physician, I, my first patient's name was Sarah Bollock, and she had a heart disease that happens rarely after pregnancy and delivery. And when I was caring for her, holding her hand many hours at the bedside and titrating medicines to keep her blood pressure up, I realized that I made a human connection with her, but was unable to get her through her critical illness because we didn't have very good technology. And I kind of vowed after she died that I would go someplace that would have great technology, train in critical care, and do my absolute best to get people through such dire straits. And that's why I decided to become an intensivist, an ICU physician, 30 years ago. That, that story is all too common, I would expect, in your line of work. Um, how can you make that human connection and at the same time protect your heart when you lose people? Because you're going to lose people, right? We are all going to lose people. You, anyway, not in medical medicine or in medicine, we all lose people. The difference as a physician is that I feel especially protective of and think that I have the role to save these people's lives or to be a part of the life-saving journey of these people through the tools that I have as a doctor. You know, Sir William Osler, one of the founding fathers of medicine, wrote a speech and delivered it at the University of Pennsylvania called Equanimitas. And in Equanimitas, he's getting at the, the need to have equanimity or an even keel. I took that asset and created it into a liability for my patients early on as an ICU doctor by keeping too great of a distance, Gwilda, from my patients. And what I've learned and the story that I tell in every deep drawn breath is about my own shame and feeling of guilt at having separated myself too much from my patients. And then my path to essentially path to recovery as a physician where I don't want to live that way anymore. And the way that I operate now with my patients is to dive deeply with them into their life journey and know that some of them are going to die and I will get hurt, but that it's part of the healing process, both for them and me, even if they're dying. Isn't that distance um, encouraged in medical school? It is. And I think that we need to adjust the way that we teach. You know, the distance is emphasized so much, protect yourself, don't get drawn in. But that's taught sometimes to the exclusion of teaching about compassion and empathy. Compassion can be taught. We need to know as physicians, as medical students, that we can begin a conversation like this. Mr. Smith, Ms. Jones, what you're going through, I understand must be extremely difficult. I don't understand it fully, but I will not leave you. I will be here with you. And I want to be part of diving deep into the chaos of your life and do whatever I can to provide lifting and healing. That sort of statement to someone makes them know that I'm entering into a covenant with them and that I will not leave them. And that really is the enduring message that I want people to get out of these patient stories in a way that can transform medicine towards the good. That's, that's a tall order though, really, isn't it? Um, how many people, how many physicians are willing and able to, to drop to that level of empathy and commitment? 
Well, I think that as the COVID pandemic has gone on, we have all been stripped of any illusion that we are always doing good in medicine. We now know that we bring sometimes harm into the patient's pathway. When the family is not present, for example, we know that it creates a form of injury to the patient. The family is not a luxury. The family is a part of the healing plan. And I, as a doctor, have had some moral injury as I've gone through the COVID pandemic. And I've watched my colleagues, and you're asking how many others are willing to stoop down to that. I think that all of us are getting back to the core of why did we do this in the first place? And while some people are gonna be leaving the profession and not being caregivers anymore, the people who are staying are trying to get down to the grassroots level of why are we here and what are we here to accomplish for others in terms of reducing human suffering. And that's the message of every deep drawn breath is we can do this if we put touch first and technology second and not the other way around. Hmm. Technology. We'll get into that just a little bit later in the uh, in the interview here, because I think the role it's playing is pretty profound. Um, but would you tell us about your passion for the care of the elderly, critically ill patient? Yes, I was fortunate enough to have a mentor named Dr. Bill Hazard, who was from Johns Hopkins and became in a sense of father to me in many ways in medicine. And he kept saying, Wes, put the lens on your camera that watches for greater vulnerability in aging. And so I consider myself really a geriatric intensivist, meaning that not only am I getting older, I'm 57 now, but that I, I keep a, an eye out towards what are my older patients in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s, for example, what are they nearer to disaster with regard to? And it's not just heart failure or pneumonia or sepsis, but it's also loneliness and mental frailty and dementia. And these are the things that I think really warrant me and my colleagues modifying how we approach the ICU to be absolutely certain that we're watching out for what they really need from us, which is a sensitivity to the entire person, whole person care, and not just a specific diagnosis that they might have going wrong in their kidney or their heart or their lung. So these people, you know, are elderly, um, they carry a lot of gifts and they carry a lot of richness, and yet they haven't been included because of the way our society honors everything that's new and not the old. How do you see that impacting their latter years and their, their transitions? I love that you asked that, Gwilda, because I do think there's an awful lot of ageism that we experience as a society. And you know, in former days, the elders held the wisdom and the cards and we would go to them and ask them, how do I push ahead in life? And now younger generations instead of going up into the elderly, they go laterally at best, Google um, or a colleague of their own age. And, and Atul Gwande has written about this in Being Mortal. And what I have a policy in my own practice, for example, that if I find out that someone has been married for 50 years, I stop whatever I'm doing and I want to understand their wisdom. It's not that they, all that would have been hunky-dory and easy either, because there's a lot of battles in a 50-year-old marriage and a lot of ways that people weather different types of storms. And that's what I want to learn about. And it's also what I'm trying to help all of my students 
resident doctors and medical students learn to value and cherish that wisdom and that prudence that our elders can give to us. It's, it's an amazing resource that's gone by the wayside, much to our detriment, I would say, wouldn't you? I completely agree. And technology, which is new and shiny and has lots of beeps and buzzers, cannot even begin to hold a candle to the wealth to be found in a single conversation of sitting down with an elder and listening to what they have to share with us. And, you know, I, um, one of my favorite books on, on my bookshelf is, is a book entitled When Black Elk Speaks. And uh, Black Elk. It is famous. a beauty. I'm, I'm going to have to interrupt this. We'll get into Black Elk. And that's a wonderful book. Okay. On the, other si- on the other side of a commercial break, Dr. Ellie and I will return shortly. So don't go away. This is Mission Evolution. For more information or to listen to past archived episodes, vision, visit www.missionevolution.org. again. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. With us this hour discussing patient care is Dr. E. Wesley Ely. Find him on Twitter at Wesley, Wes Ely, MD. Wes, we were getting into Black Elk Speaks, and that's that's a wonderful book. How did that impact you as a physician? Black Elk being a wise elder Lakota native taught me about respect for the natural history of our own tribes, of our civilization. And when Black Elk teaches about his own value system, what I saw in it was a true treasure that I never want to discount, also present in the elder elderly that I take care of at the bedside. In other words, his sharing wisdom of what he had been through over many, many decades of his life is exactly the same sort of wisdom that I want to gain from the 70, 80, 90, and over 100 and and, and centenarians that I come into contact with at the bedside. And so every time I'm with a person suffering from physical, mental health, or spiritual injury, in addition to serving them as their physician, I'm aware that I am receiving a priceless gift at the bedside too. And that's why I believe I'm entering into a covenant with that patient, a patient physician covenant, which has driven me really to revamp completely the way that I approach my life at time as a physician at the bedside. Amazing. Well, what challenges do you see the healthcare system facing now that weren't present, say, 50 years ago? Well, one of the main challenges is that physicians are bound by these new electronic systems of charting, of billing, and it takes an immense amount of time every day to enter all this into computers. 
And it takes you away from the bedside. Let's face it, whether you're in an outpatient setting with a clinic patient in the room with you and having to type into a computer, or whether you're in the ICU and having to fill out long order sets and ICU notes, all the time you're doing that, you're not at the bedside with your patient. And while that was always essentially true when I was writing my handwritten notes, it seems like the amount of time I have to spend doing it all now digitally is, is much greater. There are some advantages, however, to it, uh, you know, and, and we can put protocols in place. And like we invented a safety bundle called the ABCDEF bundle, which can be put into our care each day, followed across nurses and pharmacists and doctors. And so some of these electronic tools, if you will, are making us overall better caregivers, but we have to be careful that our mind and our face is it more often facing a monitor than it is facing the patient? And the I'm way so that glad, I get, I'm so glad you brought that, that up. Yeah, the way that I get around it is to try and kneel down, hold hands, look in their eyes, and make that connection. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, that I'm so glad you said that because I've gone into the doctor uh, recently, and I'm a pretty darn healthy person, so it's been a while, and I, I'm appalled. the The door opens. And they wheel in an electronic thing <laughs> with a keyboard and a, and a screen, and they don't ever look at you. They just sit down there and ask questions and try to get the computer to accept the answers. But then if you didn't give the right answer, they have to keep poking around until they find something it will accept or it won't let them go forward. And pretty soon they're so distracted. By the time I'm done with the doctor's visit, neither the nurse nor the doctor has looked at me, touched me made any real connection with me at all, they're busy fussing with their machines. And I can see the frustration that they're, they're suffering as well. When did it get so, so messed up like that? I mean, and how do we step around it? You, you gave some good suggestions, but how do we get around that? I think, uh, you know, all too often, I, as a physician early on, thought that my job was about technology. And I thought, you know, after Cerebolic and the other patient I mentioned in Every Deep Drawn Breath is Teresa Martin. When I cared for her with all the technology I then had, I still left her very, very injured. And I realized that technology was not the primary role I had as a physician. I needed to invert technology and touch into the order, the appropriate order of touch and technology. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm flipping it around in my brain as a doctor to say that my first job is human touch. And my second job is to use the technology to support the patient. So if I can keep it in my head, every time I walk into a room, touch first, technology second, then what I'll do is I start walking in to see you, Gwilda, and I make eye contact. I shake your hand. I touch your shoulder and say, Tell me how you're doing and what's the, not what's the matter with you, but what matters to you and to get to know you. And then we're on the right footing for our relationship. And then I can bring in technology, serve you with all the goodness it can bring, but I have not gotten it out of order. I, I have to say that would have made all the difference in the world for me if I, if I, what I had any indication whatsoever that they noticed that I was in the room. Um, and it's not that there's anything wrong with these people. It's just that the technology has become so all-consuming. Another question I have for you is what's been the impact of insurance companies' increased involvement in patient care? The insurance companies wield a lot of power 
And when we, for example, let's use COVID as an example. So a patient comes in, they get infected with the virus. I take care of them in the ICU. When they're with me in the ICU, many COVID patients develop, develop a new set of diseases in their brain and then in their muscles and nerves, which we call post-intensive care syndrome or PICS, P-I-C-S. Well, when they leave, we have to rehab their brain, rehab their body to get them back to the land of the living, as I, say, as I like to say. But then in COVID, about 100 days later, one third of them develop long COVID, which you've heard of, and they become long haulers. Well, insurance companies didn't even have on their radar to bill that we could bill for long COVID care. So when we tried to convince the patients, insurance companies, that these patient visits should be covered financially, the insurance is like, what's your billing code? What's your, you know, what disease do they have? And we'd write long COVID and they'd be like, what's that? It won't accept that. So now we're making progress to getting these, these terms and these codes accepted into the insurance. But you can see that when they wield the power of not accepting a diagnosis, I, as a doctor, feel like, what do I have to do? Make something up that's different than what they have just so I can get them paid? And that gets very, very frustrating. I can only imagine. I've, I've seen the frustration in, in some of my doctor friends' eyes when they're trying, trying their darndest to help a patient, but they keep getting blocked by the insurance company because the insurance company naturally is behind the power curve when it comes to what's going on in, in the medical arena. They have to be, you know, because you guys are on the leading edge. Is there a way that we can put the power back in the physician's hands? I think that the physician's and the other healthcare professionals, the nurses and the other members of the team, should absolutely have the command of this physician-patient covenant, this relationship. And the way to put it back in the physician's hands is to create lobbies of people who want to be humanists, that we want to go to the government, go to Washington, D.C., or wherever the government leaderships are in Canada, um, and, and speak of the importance of us serving each individual human being at the touch first technology second level so that we can have the, 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 the leeway to do what is right for each person rather than being told how to manage it based on an insurance company. And there is there are grassroots efforts underway and lobbies developing to take this power back so that we can serve you, Gwilda, as you need to be based on your own innate dignity. And that would actually serve the insurance companies in the end because people would get better. You know, if, if they feel like they're getting the care that they need, and if they are getting the care that they need, I would think that their stays in the hospital and their expenses would drop. And what I want to compliment your, your, your observation by saying is that that sort of mental fortitude and, and satisfaction that they will have will not only improve their quality of life because they feel like they're getting cared for well, but that will play over, that mental health benefit will play over into their own happiness, life satisfaction, and then the desire to live a more healthy lifestyle, which ultimately, as you said, will absolutely reduce the overall cost for the insurance companies. Well, certainly an unwieldy monster at this point, isn't it? Yes. Um, you know, tech, we're just about out of time in this segment, um, but when we get to the other side, I start now, I'd like to talk about technology and science. You know, they're really a wonderful thing, and it's really helped us get a long ways 
you know, towards healthcare. But there is a shadow side to it. Um, and would you mind starting on that? And we'll pick up on the other side of the break. What is the shadow side to technology? I believe the shadow side is that while it brings new ways of caring for people, it can be extremely depersonalizing for the patient. Imagine um, 100 people coming in to care, for example, in my world, which would be the intensive care unit, bringing in with them their own likes, dislikes, food flavors, music preferences, colors of clothing. And then when they come in, they get put through through technology, essentially a depersonalization chamber where they are sedated, tied down, immobilized, um, treated as other or as the same as everyone else. And mm. they, they're now it's and, just all gray tones. And I think well, we're, we, we are going to have to pick up with the yeah. uh, gray tones and the depersonalization on the other side of this commercial break. Dr. Ely and I will return to our discussion shortly. So you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution. For more information or to listen to past archived episodes, visit our website, www.missionevolution.org. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. Our guest this hour is Dr. E. Wesley Ely. We're speaking about the care of critically ill patients. You can find him on Twitter at Wes Ely, MD. Wes, we were getting into the shadow side of technology. Would you mind continuing? Not at all, Gwildan. Thank you for asking about this. What I was saying is that I think that people can be made to feel depersonalized by technology. And I gave the example of a depersonalization chamber that all too often we run people through as we try to give them all the right technological care and benefits uh, in, in 2021, 2022. And what I'd like to see, what patients tell me they want is for us to look at them as individual unite, unique entities. There's a Spanish phrase, cada persona es en mundo. Each person is a world. And I really believe that is true, that I cannot treat two different people as the same. I have to approach each person as a world and see what are the depths of care that this person needs because of their inherent dignity. And if I can lift them up by showing them that I see them as a person and not as a pneumonia or a heart failure or a kidney stone, et cetera, that I think that I can establish something of almost a mystical quality with my patients, which is beautiful and loving and generous. And that's the sort of healing. That's really when the healing begins for me. The technology casts a shadow on that by, by, by removing that personal touch. And, and I, I don't want to live that way anymore as a physician. 
I can imagine you wouldn't because you're having to shut so much of you out of the equation. And is, aren't there studies now proving how that kind of care, that personalized uh, heart-centered care has much better outcome with the patients? Absolutely, there are. And you can look across the literature and find good randomized controlled trials. Let's take the area of family involvement, because we know that each of us cherishes our family. When we remove family from patients, they have a much higher likelihood of death, unhappiness, and losing a will to live. There were studies done from Brazil, for example, that just opened up family visitation, allowed the family to be more often present, and immediately patients were less often delirious, had better clinical outcomes. In COVID, this was all undone, and we didn't have family present. People did feel disconnected from their reason to live. And Gwilda, I actually wonder, and I know we will never truly know the answer to this question I'm going to pose, but how many people in the pandemic era are dead because they lost the will to live because no one around them was saying, I love you, I see you, live for me. I think the number would be staggering and terrifying. It's, it's, it was unavoidable. How are we going to change it in the future? I think at the beginning, it was unavoidable. We were afraid we had a virus we didn't understand and we were worried about contagion. Now that we know how the virus works and we know that PPE works, we can fall back on the science and say to ourselves, you know what? We have science to say that the family should be present. We have PPE now to say that we can keep doctors and families safe. We can do this with the advent, of course, of vaccination and reducing the overall risk of humans. But for those who get breakthrough infections or who personally choose not to be vaccinated and end up still getting COVID or future pandemics, I think that we'll do a better job next time of keeping the humanity in the healthcare and not go through that six month to one year period that I think was really a period of anti-medicine. It was, it was terrifying for everybody concerned. And I, my heart goes out to the, the medical workers. Um, you guys were beat to death over that thing. Don't a lot of you have PTSD over it? Absolutely. You know, I mentioned earlier a thing called PICS, post-intensive care syndrome. There's also an entity called PICS-F, post-intensive care syndrome dash family. And there's also a problem of post-intensive care syndrome with healthcare professionals. What I'm saying is that both family and the doctors and nurses and other members of the ICU team can develop PTSD and depression, which are absolutely part of PICS. And so many of us have had to start seeing therapists and I'm included in that group. I see a therapist now once a week who helps me process the personal injury, the moral injury that I've gone through as a physician. And we actually have support groups for our own clinicians here at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And we open those support groups up to people from all over the country at our SIBS Center, Critical CIBS, Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction and Survivorship Center. Um, your listeners can find it simply at icudelirium.org, icudelirium.org. And we have these support groups which help us to process this PTSD and depression, Gwilda. It sounds to me like what we're looking at here is the entire enchilada is an organism, ultimately. The doctors, the patients, the families, the facility that suffers or, or 
prospers based on how things are managed and handled. Um, is that becoming more and more prevalent, recognizing that interconnectedness and inner woundedness? I like that word, interwoundedness. Yes. You know, we are realizing that all of us are connected. And, you know, they, the butterfly effect, the butterfly flaps its wings in Argentina, and ultimately the wind is felt in the Europe. Uh, we are connected through our humanism and through our innate human dignity. And when one of us is injured, because we're an organism, all of us are injured. I think of the, of the great book, The Secret Life of Trees, which taught me that trees are all one organism in a forest, which we didn't used to understand. If we think of the trees talking to one another, and when one is injured, the others are injured, we might understand better that we as humanity are even more connected than that. And I really want us to, to focus on the beauty of that, the magnitude and the beauty of our, of our connected humanity so that our interwoundedness will be something that we all feel and seek to heal and prevent that further injury. Isn't it the separation that we have been increasingly experiencing, regardless of our age, um, kind of part of what led up to the pandemic and everything crashing because there wasn't the structures to support it anymore? There wasn't that interconnectedness. I think we did lose that. Even though the world essentially got smaller with airplane travel and the internet, oftentimes we ended up being more siloed, didn't we? We were siloed by our, our, our phones and by our social networking on, online rather than personal touch social networking. And when the pandemic hit, people dove into that in spades. And I think that got, it got worse, actually. And you know, I run a research group here called the Sib Center with well over 100 investigators. And I'm just now meeting some of them that we hired several months ago because I haven't seen them in person. They've been working at home the entire time. And this makes it very difficult for us. In the time of COVID, it makes it difficult for long COVID patients as well, because at a time they really, really need to be plugged in on a human level with their caregivers, they're doing it all by Zoom. And it just doesn't seem to be as healing. Just the frustration of, of using technology for a lot of us is, is you know, debilitating. Um, you know, some people have used it in their daily life and daily work, but a lot of our elders haven't. And so trying to master Zoom enough to get a decent appointment is a challenge. Absolutely. You know, um, in, this, in this book, Every Deep Drawn Breath, I tell lots and lots of patient stories. And one of the stories that I really think about is this one of a, of a prisoner who came into our care and he was separated from his sister for several years. And let's just focus for a second on what brought his humanity back to him. It wasn't the technology of being on a ventilator in the ICU. It wasn't me putting him on high powered drips to keep his blood pressure up. It was taking the shackles off of his ankle and getting permission, insisting on permission from the warden at the jail that his sister could be in the room with him. And that is what resurrected this man. And Guilda, before his sister came and before he was unshackled, I was absolutely certain as a physician that this man was dying to the point that I even made him a DNR, DNI. I was not going to use any further technology to try and save his life. And he's now alive a year later. And I think that nothing that I did uh, was nearly as important medicinally as having his 
dignity restored, his sister at his bedside. And if we can just use stories like that, that's something that can drive all of us in our daily life, whether we're in medicine or not, to say, this next human interaction I've got, I want to make that count. Isn't ultimately that the largest medicine? I know that um, I was trained by an elder and um, he would go to the family and live with the family uh, to see where the illness really had originated because he felt, he was Lakota, he believed that if one person in the tribe or in the family was ill, the entire tribe was ill. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, isn't there? There really is. And you know, there are different types of illness, physical illnesses, mental illnesses, addictions. And I'm thinking in my own family of some addictions that we've suffered through and how it affected the entire family. And uh, these, these addictions, uh, these ways that we all get affected in life are injured. We can just say injuries. They are family diseases. And we, we need to acknowledge that and recognize that. And I think your Lakota elder was doing something very, very beautiful by taking the time and spending the energy to go find out what was the root of the problem in this patient's family. Very beautiful. Well, you know, it's that magic moment again. <laughs> We're going to need to take another break. Dr. Ely and I will be back. So you continue. We're going to continue our discussion and you don't go away. This is Mission Evolution. For more information or to listen to past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with Dr. E. Wesley Ely. You can find out more about him at Twitter, Wesley Ely MD, or icudelirium.org. Wesley, we were, um, I would like to start this segment with an interesting um, thing that we're facing as patients and doctors, and that's the, um, the, the trend towards specialists. Uh, I told you that I'd gone to the doctor recently, and I don't go very often because I'm usually pretty healthy. But by the time they were done with me, I had had five, no less than five referrals. And when I go to the next person, they wouldn't know why I was there. So there was very little communication. And I was sent to five different people for something that's really not that major. What is that doing now that we're getting so specialized? Uh, what's that doing to, to patient care? I think I'd attack this problem from two directions, one on the part of the physicians and the other on the part of the patients. And let's start with the patient, of course, because the patient is the primary concern that I have. I think the patient sees that they're being divided up by these specialists according to different root problems. And perhaps you felt, Gwilda, that you weren't being seen as an entire person. And I worry that you and or I, if I go to multiple specialists, will feel like that my whole person is not being heard, but that somebody's just focusing on my heart, the next person's just focusing on my lungs, 
but those things don't operate independent from one another, do they? They are intimately connected as, as organ systems have to be. So I worry that subspecialization is making the patient's care too fragmented and therefore not as effective. And then the second thing I would say is that the doctor himself, herself will see that their role is focused down this one thing and then therefore not have a wide angle lens to see the entire person and can actually make erroneous decisions about interventions and procedures that might not fit in with the overall life goals of the person. Yeah, that is such a good point, because um, if you don't have just one person, I mean, I know we have primary care physicians, but usually once they pass you on to somebody else to look for something else or look at it at a different angle, they aren't really hands on anymore. And so you feel very scattered and like, like you and everything about you is slipping between the cracks. I, I, I hope that we can kind of back that out a little. I mean, I know with the advances in science that one person can't know it all. How can we Bring it together, though, so that the person doesn't suffer from it. Right. The way to do that, and I think some institutions are better at this than others, and I'll, I don't even work there, but I'll just hold up the Mayo Clinic as a good example of a place that does this very, very well. When they see a patient and go through subspecialization, they have the network and the team organized in such a beautiful way that everything gets brought back together in the end. So the patient feels like, if, to use a, a sports analogy, that they have a quarterback directing traffic and calling the plays, and that even though they might not, they might need to go on to subspecialists along the way, at some point it's all going to be brought back together with what I call warm, what we call warm handoffs to one another, so that the communication loops are all closed. And this closed loop communication, in the way of quality improvement programs and plan, do, study, act, PDSA cycles. This is the way we can continually work to improve our system over time so that the patient is not lost in the shuffle. So uh, changing gears a little bit, what problems do you see in the current end-of-life care and how can we address those? End-of-life care is a beautiful thing. And I think that all too often we don't think of it as beautiful. We hear horror stories about people dying in pain, dying, suffering, et cetera. And what I view that is a failure of palliative care, a failure of medicine. Palliative care is relatively nascent in the grand scheme of things. And what happened in medicine was that as our technology improved, we could keep people alive for much longer than they would have been kept alive 50 to 100 years ago. And with that comes the possibility of ongoing suffering if we don't introduce palliation earlier on in the process. So this, one of the solutions here for end-of-life care is to really dramatically expand palliative care to be not something that's plugged in just at the end of life, but even early in the course of illness when you're first diagnosed with heart failure or cancer and you have many, many months, if not years to live, that we then employ the palliative care experts. And here at Vanderbilt, we are doing randomized controlled trials of much earlier palliative care involvement. And um, I, I think that we're finding some beautiful ways of improving end of life care through those investigations. Do they include counseling to help a person not fear death quite as much? Is, is there some, because I've seen people just hang on forever and suffer greatly because they're terrified to die um, rather than seeing it as a transition. Is there some provision to help people reconcile that? 
Absolutely. And that I, I love that you brought that up, Wilda, because what I try and do for my patients, and we're teaching this to young doctors and even pre-med students are now taking courses in college on compassion and empathy before they even enter medical school so that we can create a new breed of physicians who are more prepared to be compassionate, empathetic physicians. And the difference is, is the difference between uh, benevolence and beneficence. Benevolence is the desire to do good and beneficence is, is, beneficence is actually doing good. It's also the difference between sympathy, which is feeling sorry for someone and empathy, which is feeling with them. So what I do with my patients, and there, there are lots of stories in, uh, in every deep drawn breath about this. I'll just tell you one quick one here, was uh, Colonel Correa, a 9-11 hero after the Pentagon bombings, came under my care at the end of his life when he was dying of malignancy. And once we realized that we couldn't cure him physically, we changed our ladder that we were climbing from a wall of cure over and put it on the wall of comfort. And from that point on, his family was with him, even though it was COVID era times, we made sure his sons and daughters and wife were at his bedside the entire time. And he died a beautiful, peaceful dying process that was extremely fulfilling to him and his family with resolution of family conflicts. And you know what? When he finally took his last breath, his wife looked up at the clock and she said, it's 9-11. And it was on the dot. Oh, my goodness. Yep. <laughs> you know, the, the, the death process brings out so many coincidences and synchronicities that I've heard over and over and over again. And you wonder how much hand the uh, dying person had in those things. Yes, exactly. So um, you've spoken of your book several times. Um, The name of it again is the Every Deep deep Drawn Breath. breath. It's beautiful. I I abbreviated EDDB. And it's it's from a quote of Steinbeck from East of Eden that really is about wonder glory and humility. And it's at the beginning of the book, but every deep drawn breath, I chose that name because of those three characteristics, humility for, for me as a physician, the wonder of the human body and the glory of our relationships. Beautiful. So um, where are all the proceeds from that book going? Oh, every penny, all of the net proceeds are going back to patients and families, COVID survivors and their families, and what we're going to do with these money, with this money from the book is set up foundation and an endowment that will hire social workers and serve patients and families to get through the morass of insurance, disability that really disable and cripple their life because they become financially broke. They lose their jobs. They can't pay their electricity bill. And we want to see people restored physically through recovery, but also financially and from a mental health perspective. So every penny from every deep drawn breath is going back into the hands of the people who make the book, I hope, an impactful book, and that's the patients and families. Beautiful. Dr. Ely, what is your mission? My mission is to lift up other people and to provide mercy. And I believe my working definition for mercy is to enter into the chaos of other people's lives and provide lifting and healing. And my patients taught me that this is my mission. I I strayed early on in my life and I thought that my job was about technology and I was wrong. And writing every deep drawn breath helped me process the shame and the injury 
that I had been carrying and that I had carried to my patients. And so my mission is, is healing and love for people out in the world, non-medical people who are going to be patients someday. And essentially that is all of us. Beautiful, beautiful mission, sir. I'm glad you're here doing it. We're just about out of time. In closing, what do you have to say to, to the Mission Evolution's audience? I want the Mission Evolution audience to realize that evolution in our own life is inevitable and beautiful, and that we have to, as we proceed as humans, be willing to change and be willing to realize that things earlier in our life that might have helped us, that might have been assets, can become liabilities later in life in relationships and for ourselves personally. And if we are if we are committed to change and healing, we have to be willing to go through the work and the spiritual foundational meditation practice each day to figure out how do I change? How do I progress? How do I heal? And then pay it back to those people around me to help them heal too. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Dr. Ely, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. It has been my privilege and I really consider this a beautiful show that you have. And thank you, Wilda, for all that you do. My pleasure. Our guest this hour has been Dr. E. Wesley Ely, the author of Every Deep Dawn Drawn Breath. Dr. Ely is a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and the Associate Director of Research for the VA Tennessee Geriatric Research Center. You can find him at Wes Ely MD on Twitter. This has been Mission Evolution with Wilda Wiecka. For more information or to listen to past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. Be sure to join us next time as the mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to our evolving world.